How should Christians, or any people of faith, or for that matter, those of no religious faith, engage the culture? That perennial question can, of course, be asked politically, theologically, economically, sociologically, and in a myriad number of other ways. But most of the time, at least for the evangelical Christian tribe with which he's most familiar, James Davison Hunter says that we ask that question wrongly. As he describes it, the yearning to change the world is typically wrongheaded, quote, because it dubiously assumes that the world can be controlled and managed. Dr. Hunter is the LeBras Levinson Distinguished Professor of Religion, Culture, and Social Theory at the University of Virginia, where he's taught since 1983. He's written eight books and edited three more, several of which he discusses in this marvelous conversation with Pete Weiner, author of The Death of Politics, How to Heal Our Frayed Republic After Trump, and a regular contributor at The Atlantic, as well as a contributing opinion writer for The New York Times. Instead of conquering, instead of takeover, James says the better way to influence the world is to enact shalom in our own lives and to speak what he today terms incarnational truth and to seek well-being on behalf of all others through the long, patient, and deliberate practice of faithful presence. In 1995, James founded the university's Institute for Advanced Studies in Culture, an interdisciplinary research center focused on contemporary cultural change. Its scholarship helps to explain how contemporary experience, and any historical snapshot for that matter, always takes place within a larger tectonic story, and how that much larger cultural reality is always affecting individuals, institutions, and society. Including, for example, last week, when, within what James calls a larger climatological reality, storm clouds that were brewing not just for nine weeks or even four years, but over a much, much larger period of time, motivated a mob of pro-Trump protesters to breach the Capitol doors, break through its windows in insurrection, leading to the death of five Americans. But if that was a flashpoint, even a hurricane, James and his Institute colleague Carl Bowman saw clearly related trouble rising when they published this past November findings from an in-depth survey with 2,205 Americans whose backgrounds reflect our country's religious, racial, and political diversity. Their outstanding 110-page report, linked in the show notes, drills down on increasingly stubborn cultural commitments of our fellow citizens. The report title is Democracy in Dark Times, and those last three words show their power in the longer-form document. As it argues, in short, Americans are today far more deeply fractured by ideology, religion, race, and income than we tend to think. And it's a dangerous cocktail, shaped in part by a long tailwind of civil religion throughout American history, and by growing animosity amongst a cultural religious class who resents being ostracized by society's elites. In fact, especially for white evangelicals who are losing a former position of hegemonic cultural privilege. Citing Hunter and Bowman, white evangelicals are President Trump's main political base, and yet the majority of non-evangelical Americans including a majority of social elites, the gatekeepers of late modern society, are so negatively disposed toward religious evangelicals that we see the early cultural conditions for the decline of evangelical political influence, and because of its close association with evangelicalism, of the Republican Party itself. That's an important claim, and this big thing conversation very much takes place in that context. 
I'd also note that it transpired the afternoon prior to the storming of the Capitol by pro-Trump, QAnon, and other protesters. Though more analyst than prophet, James hints at several answers too, but he argues those really should begin with a clearer awareness of our perennial struggle with handling power well, and rather than bravado, with an awareness of the fragility of self-governance. I would say that historically, Christians have known what to do with a lot of power, and they have known what to do when they have no power. They don't know what to do, generally, as a community, when they have to share power. What are the alternatives, especially for young people coming of age in the present moment? Should, for example, millennials withdraw entirely from politics, or at least from conservatism in disgust? Should churches divide over their views of the current, soon outgoing president? Or perhaps the real work is personal, as Pete suggests. He writes in there, what we have loved, others will love, and we uh, will teach them how. And I think part of what this has to do, this reclamation project for the evangelical movement and really any reclamation project, is to love the right things and to help others to love those things too. The critical thing, James argues, is to see clearly and to understand our cultural moment within a larger context, as he argues in his resplendent book to change the world, Irony, Tragedy, and Possibility of Christianity in the Late Modern World, published in 2010 by Oxford University Press. During the last century, both the religious right and left have frequently sought cultural takeover and political dominance, or at other times principled and complete withdrawal. Neither is right. Instead, Hunter argues for faithful presence within. The task, he says, is not to be defensive against or isolated from or absorbed into the dominant culture, but to be faithfully present within it, maintaining distinctiveness, but in ways that truly serve the common good. Our accommodation must always remain critical. Any resistance must always remain humble. Steadiness and faithfulness will likely yield far greater fruit than ambition or an overzealous sense of self-agency. And in the end, James says, lasting cultural change occurs through dense networks of elites operating in common purpose within institutions at the high prestige centers of cultural production. Want to build up the common good, politically, theologically, economically or otherwise, in our short lifetime? That starts by clearly understanding first the profound limits of any lone man or woman's singular cultural contribution, and second, our true cultural context, which is often quite different than we think. In fact, James argues that today we've already gone over the slippery slope, that we're over a century into, perhaps even a century and a half into, the end of any truly shared sense of political and religious authority. We are stuck. We are well beyond the slippery slope. With one of the foremost sociologists of our time in dialogue with one of the country's most principled and far-sighted public intellectuals and political analysts, Let's dive in to a sobering, yet nonetheless hopeful, reflection on the state of American democracy and possibilities for the future. Enjoy the conversation. Thanks, Josh, and, and thanks so much, James, for being part of this podcast. Both of us are great admirers of your work intellectually and, and the influence that you've had in the intellectual and the, and the world of faith. And you've written a lot of things that both Josh and I want to get into. But I wanted to start out 
First, if I could, I think it'd be interesting to the listeners of the podcast to hear a little bit more about you, learn more about your story, including who the formative influences on you, who they were, both intellectually and spiritually. A short version of how did James Davison Hunter become James Davison Hunter? I would love to skip that question, but I'll, I'll keep it brief since you've asked. So I'm 65 years old now, and I came to age at the very end, I mean, as a young adult, at the end of the, the war in Vietnam. I was in the last draft. There are many of my uh, older brother and sister's friends who had gone to Vietnam, some who protested. It was a, a confusing time. And of course, I was a, mostly a youngster during the civil rights movement and some of the racial protests. I was, I was aware when Martin Luther King was assassinated as, as Robert Kennedy. These were just extraordinarily confusing times. And I think the biographical part of all of this is an attempt to understand clearly. We live in a time in which everything has been politicized. Everyone has an opinion on something. And I felt that it was more important to understand well, to see clearly, than to jump in and simply speak my mind about whatever I happen to feel at a particular moment. And so I think, again, biographically, that's where my own interests to become a scholar originated. I read quite a number of people as an undergraduate. I read every word that Peter Berger had written. I had read every word that Jacques Ellul had written, Irvin Goffman, Robert Bella, some other interdisciplinary thinkers in the social sciences. And Peter was the only one who was alive at that time. And I decided that I wanted to understand how Berger thought, how he wrote, why he thought the way he did. And so I actually only applied to one graduate school, and that was where Peter was. And so I did a joint program at Rutgers and Princeton and studied with Peter at Rutgers. He was the chair of my dissertation and then at Princeton with Bob Lucknow. So in any event, that was the beginning of all this. Oh, that's a fascinating journey, and it's it's helpful. That's a lovely phrase to understand well. It's re it really is a sort of the classical scholar's attitude, and it's one that, particularly, I think, in the social media age, has been lost when people decide to, to opine on things without really understanding. Well, let me let me turn to the report. It, you've you've written a lot of books, as I mentioned earlier, which we might get to. But in mid November, the institute which you you had, the Institute for Advanced Studies in Culture at UVA put out a report, which I highly recommend to people. It's very well-written and thoughtful and insightful democracy in, in dark times. And in it, you say that you want to understand, uh, and your colleagues who wrote it, not just the political weather, but the cultural climate shaping the election. So the first thing that I was interested in is if you could explain to, to listeners the difference between weather and climate. And then second, to offer a sort of a 15,000-foot view of the report, the findings and the insights that you think are either most salient or struck you as most important or surprising or confirming? Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, great first question. So let me begin with a contrast with a colleague of mine who many of your listeners may know of, at least by reputation, my colleague Larry Sabato in the politics department. Larry is quite an accomplished political analyst. He studies polls, he studies elections, and he's constantly examining the political fate of, of different candidates, different elections, sometimes they're national elections, sometimes they're local elections, but following candidates, following the polls that surround candidates during an election cycle 
oftentimes like following the weather. Today it's rainy and it's cold, but tomorrow it's going to be dry and warm. And sometimes there are events or there's news that is breaking that changes the weather. This is interesting stuff. I think it's important stuff at some level. But my view is that what is often missed in so much of our political commentary these days is an understanding of the larger historical and cultural context within which politics is taking place. And so thus the analogy between the climate and the weather. At the Institute, we are much more interested in the climatological changes, changes that are oftentimes unseen, the way in which the climate in our natural environment are not readily observed the way the weather is, and yet climatological changes that have an effect, an impact on the day-to-day weather. We know that climate warming is affecting the day-to-day weather and weather patterns and so on. It's the same in, in our politics. And so we're interested in a lot of those dynamics that are oftentimes more implicit than explicit, not as readily seen as they are observable in our day-to-day. We think those are leading indicators in many respects of what is to come. Yeah, thanks. That, that's a helpful distinction. And what about the report itself? What were the findings and insights that, that really most stood out to you as you prepared the report and that you would say that people should take? What would you like the two or three points for people to take away from that report? Because it's a a kind of ominous title, Democracy in Dark Times. I actually think that's right. It doesn't mean that dark times are permanent or that we can't change it or that we're... Or there won't be lighter times in the future, right? Exactly. But I assume that someone who wrote The Death of of Politics would probably agree with (laughs) the imagery of, of of dark times. Yeah, so there has been, ever since the early 1970s, actually even before that, but it came into international prominence when a German social theorist by the name of Jorgen Habermas wrote a book called Legitimation Crisis. And it was essentially a study of post-World War II Western democracies and the crisis of legitimacy that they were facing. Now, Habermas had his own understanding of why that was. And it was mainly, in his view, a problem of the social contract. Governments simply couldn't deliver on the kinds of things that the electorate, whether in Germany or France or the United States or Great Britain, believed they were contracted to do. And as a consequence of that broken contract, there was a legitimation crisis that those who were in positions of leadership, those who had claimed the authority to lead, that authority was being undermined by the people who elected them. I think that those dynamics continue to be in play in the early decades of the 21st century. But I think in the American case, the legitimation crisis is further fueled, maybe even primarily fueled by the dynamics of the culture war. That what one side of the cultural divide views as legitimate, as legitimate authority, legitimate policy, legitimate governing philosophy, the other finds utterly illegitimate and vice versa. And so you see, for example, something that you've watched up close and personal. Clinton hatred is replaced by Bush hatred, which is replaced by Obama hatred, and so on. And it goes back and forth, back and forth. And so over a period of now 50 to 60 years, as long as questions about the confidence that people have in governance 
and in their the governing institutions, not just political, but others, as long as these questions have been asked, we have been dis- seeing a declining level of legitimacy of the federal government, of different branches of the federal government, of the media, and so on. So this represents a climatological phenomenon that has not changed in one election or another. So the survey, first of all, documents that the legitimation crisis, that the sense that the American public has deep distrust of its governing institutions, a deep cynicism toward its political leadership, and a sense of alienation from the powers that affect their lives on a day-to-day basis, that legitimation crisis has deepened. And it's not simply a matter of which side is in control or not, but it is affected by that. It's pretty much across the board. Yeah. One question I had, if you could dilate a little bit on it, because I entirely agree with you about the legitimation crisis. I think you articulated it well. What I have wondered about, and maybe you could shed some light on this, is how much of that crisis and legitimacy is warranted because the failure of institutions versus some deeper cultural and philosophical currents that created an erosion of authority in, in some respects, regardless of how well the institutions did that there was almost a philosophical current of thought, which was postmodern and, and called it into question, because I certainly accept the idea that institutions at every level have failed, religious, media, political, and otherwise. But of course, that's true of the human condition. Institutions always fail. My sense is that those philosophical currents sort of met and converged with some legitimate failures in these institutions. But maybe more than a half century ago, you wouldn't have had this collapse of trust. Is that fair? And how do you think about what's legitimate and what's the product of a broader loss of trust? Yeah, it's a great question. And I don't think it has a simple answer, Pete. I think at one level, the legitimation crisis is rooted in expectations that are way too high for any institution to live up to and not least our political institutions. We have imputed astronomically high expectations for what the government should do, that it will save our nation. I mean, even Joe Biden is talking about this elect past election as being a way of saving the soul of America. Politics can't do that. And when Joe Biden fails to deliver that, it's simply going to contribute to a deepening of the disappointment, even among his own truest followers. So I think we have imputed far too high expectations on our governing institutions. I also think, though, that we have witnessed, this is something I know that you've written about, read deeply into, and and would agree with, that there's also a failure of our civil institutions, non-governmental institutions, who philosophically play the role of educating the public. That's what they're supposed to do, to mediate between the powerful dynamics of the state and the market on the one hand, and ordinary individuals and local communities on the other hand. And these institutions have failed in many ways, but not least by becoming highly partisan themselves. So when it's not just the media, but religious institutions, even philanthropy, philanthropy has has just taken sides in the culture war. And as a consequence, 
there's no one who's educating, no one who's mediating, no one who's trying to, to see clearly and to understand well and to translate. We are simply getting the war of all against all. And I think that contributes as well. That's a helpful explanation. It, it does strike me, apropos what you said, that in the political realm and not just the political realm, that people have placed these huge expectations on institutions and then give no benefit of the doubt to the people who run the institutions. I think it was Henry Kissinger who years ago said that you can't demand perfection as the price of confidence. And in some respects, people are demanding perfection. Now, having said that, again, institutions, many of them have failed. Back to the report, you have a section, race, religion, and politics, and the subcategory of evangelicalism and cultural other. You say that since the American Civil War, conservative Protestantism has lost stature and authority, moving from the centers of cultural influence to the periphery, which, which is undoubtedly true, and that a big part of the story of contemporary culture wars is this effort by modern-day traditional Protestants to retain their place in shaping culture like they once did and to enjoy those privileges that accompanied the influence. And then you, you write this, on theological and philosophical grounds alone, evangelicalism today finds itself outside the mainstream of the contemporary world. But the more political power the evangelical movement has sought to wield, and the more the evangelical movement has aligned itself with the politics and practices of the political right, the more its reputation has been diminished. And I, I'm wondering, as you assess the approach of the evangelical movement, how do you think of their cultural and political engagement? And do you think that the diminishment in their reputation is warranted? It's one thing to say, just descriptively, that their reputation is diminished. It's another thing to say that it's diminished because it's it's been earned, in a sense. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think, as in almost every discussion about our political culture and our public culture, there is a difference between ordinary citizens and our leadership. And sometimes our leadership looks bad by comparison to the people they lead. And sometimes the citizens look good in comparison to some of the, the leaders who, who claim authority to lead. And I think that distinction is, is relevant here. I have no doubt about the good intent of many evangelicals, of people of faith more broadly, and the support of conservative politics. Absolutely no, it's entirely legitimate for people of faith to vote in any way that they want. In the case of evangelicals, I do think that they are not only aligned with a kind of conservative politics, that's one thing, but I think they have now become so aligned with a brand of conservatism. I'm not even sure it's conservative anymore. It's certainly not principled conservatism that you have so ably championed in your columns and your talks and elsewhere. It's, it is a kind of desperate will to power, the sense that the place of privilege that evangelicals, and, and by privilege, I don't mean economic necessarily. I'm just talking about the, the privilege of respect. Has, there is such a culture of condescension toward working class, middle class people of faith by our elites that they've responded in ways that I think, in fact, undermine the very faith that they espouse. They respond in anger. 
they respond with resentment. And as you know, from things that I've written before, and I know that you've, you've read, the cultural logic of resentment leads to one thing, and that's revenge. And so in many respects, to the extent that they have aligned themselves outside of a principled conservatism and with a kind of malignant Trumpian conservatism, it becomes a nihilistic politics. So at a movement level, I do think in some respects, the way that evangelicals have responded in public and politically and the reaction to them, I think is warranted. I think in terms of the intent, what evangelicals, the rank and file evangelicals really long for, I don't think the kind of condescension that has been heaped on them is warranted at all. It deserves respect. I think their fears are legitimate. Even if they're not my fears, they should be taken seriously. And they're not. So that may be too complicated an answer. but It's a wonderful answer. And I wonder if you might both comment a little bit on what you see as a healthy alternative, as a, as a possible place to go. I mean, you've commented already a little bit, James, and, and in writing elsewhere also about the marginalization, the sort of psychology of that, of the last really century, the rise of various small Christian colleges because there's not room at Yale or at the big elite schools, you know, the psychology of that, the history of it, the experience of it, the sociology of it, and in a sense, post-religious right, now this kind of grasping when an alternative might be something closer to pluralism, to faithful presence, as you describe in your 2010 book, uh, what that actually means. Can you say a little bit more about the alternatives available to living as part of a religious minority and how that plays out in, in public life? especially in what you each want for evangelicals in particular today? Well, I think generally, I would say that historically, Christians have known what to do with a lot of power, and they have known what to do when they have no power. They don't know what to do generally as a community when they have to share power. That's a general rule. There is this sense, given American history, that the remnants of the Puritan experiment feel like America is theirs. They helped build it. It was their culture. It was their vision. It was the Puritan work ethic, etc. And it's being taken away from them. And they're no longer the dominant cultural force and haven't been for quite some time, but they have lost standing. And they find themselves in a situation of having to share power. And part of the turn that has taken is that they understand power primarily in political terms. They don't understand power in civic terms, in cultural terms. They see it purely in the ways that many of their opponents see it, which is in the will to power, the will to dominate. And as a consequence, they operate with a kind of zero-sum logic. Any influence that I have, I take away from my opponent, any influence that they have, they take away from me, and therefore there is no common ground. And I think if there is a politics to faithful presence, you know, as I argue, the dominant in, in that earlier book, the dominant politics of conservatism is the religious right and of the religious left, it is political progressivism. And for the neo-Anabaptists, it's a political quietism. 
But if there is a politics to faithful presence, it's a Burkean politics. It's a Tocquevillian politics that understands the politas as not merely about the state, but about all of civil society. And there, Christians have so much to contribute. But unfortunately, warranted or, or not, they've abandoned civil society in so many ways for politics itself, believing that politics can solve the problems. If they just get Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett into the Supreme Court, if they just get Trump into the White House, the problems will be solved. And as we all know, that won't happen. So it does not redound to a capacious and, if you will, an altruistic political philosophy. Yeah, just just to build on that, I think that's very elegantly put, and I, I identify myself with, with everything that you said, James. A, a couple of thoughts, a couple of threads to pull on. The first is, I agree with you. I don't think what is happening now on the American right is conservatism. In fact, I think in many respects, it's antithetical to conservatism. I think of it as a kind of unmitigated and unrefined populism, a certain reactionary reactionary impulse that's long been a part of the American right, and even a quasi-nihilism, and in some respects, I think an outright nihilism. And, you know, populism and conservatism have never been synonymous, but they have at their best been able to live with each other and learn from one another. But populism, when it's transmogrified into kind of mob mentality and the passions of the people that are unchecked, which is, as you know, was a great worry of the founders and of Lincoln. Actually, it's the Young Men's Lyceum speech was, was about the dangers of, of mob violence and mob mentality. That's very, very dangerous. It's very, very, very different, of course, from Burkean or conservatism or, or Oakshot. The thing I'll say is that a figure like Ronald Reagan took these populist passions that always exist, and I think by and large channeled them in a constructive way. Whereas Trump took, Donald Trump took those passions and channeled them in a destructive way. In terms of the evangelical movement itself and, and its attitudes, a couple of points. In 2016, I was doing an event at Stanford with Arlie Hochschild, a sociologist who wrote a terrific book, Strangers in Their Own Land. And she had spent a lot of time in the bio country of Louisiana to understand the Tea Party movement. And by the time 2016 rolled around that, it, of course, Donald Trump was, was on the political scene. This was shortly before the election. And we were taking a cab, I think it was to the event. And she said to me, Pete, the thing you have to understand about Trump supporters is they feel dishonored and they feel humiliated. And they feel like he is an antidote to that. And I think you were getting at that. There has been a cultural condescension toward evangelicals and conservative Christians for a long time. I I don't think that they responded well to it, but I also think that some of that condescension and patronizing attitude and hostility has been both unwarranted and harmful and created a certain destructive mindset in response. The other thing is what has struck me quite powerfully in the last couple of years is that there is a feeling of almost desperation in terms of the trajectory of the culture. And I've had conversations with a lot of evangelical friends, and they really do feel like we're on the edge of an abyss and that the wrong presidential outcome in an election or the wrong Supreme Court justice could lead to the destruction of the country and their way of life. And so the energy behind these issues has that feeling of an existential crisis. 
And when I pointed out to people that a lot of the social and cultural indicators since the 1990s have gotten better, including abortion numbers, which are at the lowest level since before Roe v. Wade, the interesting thing to me is that the reaction is not relief or hopefulness or a sense that can we build on this. It actually tends to be almost a kind of frustration because the data runs counter to the narrative. They want to hold to the narrative. They don't want to wrestle with what the data may say about, about the narrative. And just the last thing, Josh, in terms of, of what can be done about it, there's a lovely line in, in a Wordsworth poem, The Prelude, which is a very long poem. But he, he writes in there, what we have loved, others will love, and we will teach them how. And I think part of what this has to do, this reclamation project for the evangelical movement and really any reclamation project, is to love the right things and to help others to love those things too. And the way that you teach other people to love the right things is in your own life to manifest those things and to remind people why things that are worthy of, of their loves and affections, honor, and integrity, and faithfulness are not only right in and of themselves, but they're the key to human fulfillment on an individual level and in a societal level. And I think sometimes we try to get a shortcut. We think, well, how can we repair ourselves culturally, theologically, if the foundation has has weakened or begun to crack? So I think it's in some respects, it has to do with the human heart. We have to, particularly as people of, of faith, have to fall in love with the right things and then take on that task. And then on a practical level, I would say that there are younger evangelicals and James, you may have some thoughts on this, but my sense, both anecdotally and from what I've heard from theologians, from seminary presidents, and from pastors, is that a lot of younger evangelicals, including people of conservative theological beliefs and even conservative political beliefs, are really having a strong reaction against this older generation of particularly white evangelical leaders. They think this is a kind of moral freak show, and they do not want to replicate these errors. They want to find a new and different, more capacious and higher and better way to engage culture and politics. And I think there will be an opening. And I do think that one of the tasks of the church over the next decade and beyond is to begin to teach people on a fundamental level what cultural and political engagement in a faithful way looks like. Because I think we the churches have given up on that task. And I think there's been there's been a cost and, and now there's a feedback loop. So a lot of the sensibilities are being shaped by Fox News, by right-wing talk radio, increasingly by Newsmax and OAN. And the church needs to have a role in shaping the moral and cultural sensibilities of, of people of faith. Yeah, I wonder how closely you see power you know, being tied to that end, uh, uh, James, before you get in on Pete and weigh in on his book a little bit here. But, you know, Andy Crouch's line about power that we often say it's supposed to be this sort of beautiful authority partnership, but really it's about Nietzschean will dominance, as you just described. Lord Jonathan Sachs, Rabbi, Rabbi Sachs, who's been with our journalist recently, talks about this as well. There's a Baalist option that's about domineering and there's a Yahweh version that Elijah goes for, which is about partnership and authority. It's a very different taste. You know, when you think about conquest being one big option that you talk about and change the world or absolute withdrawal, and you think about the younger, the younger generation, how does the practice of power, whether in 
the church or in academia or journalism or politics play into that? Well, first of all, I would say that though I don't draw uh, call attention to her, my own reflections on power in to change the world were informed by many different sources, but not least Hannah Arendt. And Arendt makes the distinction between power over and power for. And our Nietzschean politics is all about power over. The power that we equally possess, but don't often think about or conceptualize or imagine from is power for. So I think a rent is very important here. And I think that's ultimately one point of strong linkage between a rent here and Pete Weiner and his encouragement to teach people what to love more and better. I first of all want to affirm Pete in, in his views of the church and what the church needs to do, could do. I think that could be spun out even further and I want to affirm his view of what we need to do by way of teaching from the pulpit what to love, where our first loves are, how they manifest themselves through incarnation. But this is also the place where I may find the strongest disagreement uh, with Pete, if you'll permit me. Let me argue by way of analogy. Bob Putnam, years ago, as you know, wrote a book called Bowling Alone. We're all familiar with that book. It was a powerful book. It was a powerful book in its use of survey data to show how the bonding and bridging capital of our social ties in America have just become weaker and weaker and weaker. 95% of the book is a story of the ways in which structural changes in our society have weakened that bonding and bridging capital, the social capital that makes social comedy possible in the first place. And yet at the end, in the final part of the book, Putnam says, what do we do about this? What do we do? We simply need to try harder. We simply need to will ourselves into a new situation, person by person. And at one level, I completely agree with that. Please don't hear complete disagreement. I'm, I'm, I'm not. I, I agree with that. I think those are things that need to be done in every family, in every neighborhood, in every community across the nation. I think it undermines, however, it, it undersells the importance of institutions. Capitalism today, in its various forms, is the most powerful and global institution in human history. The modern state is also one of the most powerful institutions. The entertainment industry, the internet, technology, Again, among the most powerful communications institutions in the history of humankind. And unless we take the measure of the power of those institutions, we understand their dynamics, we understand their leadership, we understand their culture, a mostly implicit culture, no matter how much we try in our families, no matter how much we try in our neighborhoods, our churches, synagogues, and mosques, our cities and towns, unless we take the measure of those institutions and find ways of harnessing that power toward reparation, toward the reconstruction and repair of our civil society, we're not going to have much luck. That would be my argument. And I think that's 
That would be my one point of disagreement. And it's not as though you would disagree. I think you would agree with me, Pete, on, on all of those things. It's just, I don't find that element emphasized enough in your writing, at least from my vantage point. And, but do think it is a central part that we must take the measure of. No, I don't take that as a criticism or I, I take it as a helpful critique. And, I, and I'll keep it in mind, actually, in terms of my own writing. What you articulated, I completely agree with. Indeed, I, I would cheer it on. One of my closest friends, former colleague Yuval Levin, wrote a book called A Time to Build, which I, I would recommend to people in addition to the report and all of your books. It's a really good book. It's actually an even better podcast. Just go back a couple of <laughs> Exactly. And I will say, Yuval is one of the leading voices in the importance of the reclamation of institutions in our lives today. And, and as a person who is a classical conservative, I almost by definition have to believe in the power of institutions, because those are the things that ultimately shape us as people. Of course, institutions are comprised by individuals. And so there has to be within the, within the human heart and individual lives, a kind of a reconstruction that takes place that manifests itself in healthy institutions. But at the same time, all of us, as you know, James and, and, and Josh, we were born into institutions from the family, their schools, often religious places of worship and so forth. So all of us are shaped by those institutions. And there's just no way that we're going to get to where we need to be without our institutions getting healthier and, and, and channeling that. But I actually appreciate what you said, and, and I'm going to examine my own writing in light of that, because perhaps I don't emphasize that as much as I should or even that I, that I mean to. I could, push, I could say one other thing about that, though, and it's just to highlight an element of this. To be sure, institutions are comprised of individuals, but they're also more than the sum of their parts. They operate with logics that are, in the classic theoretical language, sui generis, independent of the will of individuals, oftentimes. I'll recount one short experience I had at the American Enterprise Institute when To Change the World came out. After a, a lunch in which I met with a group of the leaders of conservative Christian organizations, a small group came up to me and they said, look, you just don't understand. I had made the argument that the Christian right had largely embraced a kind of Nietzschean will to power. And it was fueled by the logic of resentment, resentment, cultural logic of revenge. And they were saying, no, 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 you don't understand. We're nice people. We don't kick our dogs. We share sugar with our neighbors. We're, we're good people. We get along. And I said, well, I have no doubt that that's true. But you are part of organizations that raise money on the basis of fear, of cultivating fear. You are part of organizations that demonize your enemy rather than love your enemy. And they said, well, what should we do? And I said, well, why not take an ad out in the Washington Post, a full page ad that says, we have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We are told not to live in fear, but we have cultivated fear among our own and among those who we seek to, to draw in. We have not lived by our own ethical principles, and indeed spiritual principles. And for this, we are sorry. And we pledged, we the undersigned pledged to do better. And they said, we could never do that. We would have to fold up shop. And the reason they couldn't do it and can't do it is because of the power of in institutions and their cultural logic. 
That's a very telling anecdote. And of course, a lot of these institutions run on, as you said, on fear. And that's quite honestly also where, where money comes in. It's this downward cycle of fear. Just one anecdote before I get to a question, which I've really been wrestling with, and I think you'll be helpful in trying to understand going forward, but quickly the anecdote, which is you both will recall it was back uh, over five years ago when Dylan Roof went to the AME church in Charleston, South Carolina, and killed a number of African-Americans who were, I believe, having a Bible study at the church at that time. And during the arraignment, a few days after the killing, family members were brought in and they were able to say to him whatever it was that was on their heart. And a number of the family members, through tears, talking about the grief of the loss of the people they most loved, said, I forgive you. And that was so moving. And I recall linking to that exchange. And I sent it to a friend of mine who is an atheist. And I told him how moving this was. And his response to me was something to the effect of, you know, I've never really understood the concept of grace, but I understand it a lot better now. And his point was, what he essentially said to me was, in fact, he, he may have literally have said this to me in the email response is, when you see manifestations of grace like that, it makes me wish that I could believe. And I will say that in my experience, the one thing that as people of faith, as, as a person of the Christian faith, that cuts through and resonates in the hearts of other people, including people who are not believers, is grace. Because I think it's a concept that the world itself doesn't quite have the tools to understand. But when you see it manifest and modeled in its best ways, even if you as a person don't accept the faith beliefs, there's something quite moving and compelling and attractive to it. And I would say that building on some of your observations and, and, and your work and the work of others is that if you looked at how evangelicals have engaged culturally and politically, let's say from the time of the 1980 or the late 70s with the moral majority, the idea that grace has been characteristic of it is, I don't think anybody could say that. In fact, it's been in some respects probably anti-grace. And if you could flip that around, I think an awful lot would. Absolutely. I want to say preach it. You know, it is our identity politics today of which evangelicals participate in fully, full-throatedly, but is, which is also ubiquitous across the political spectrum, operates with a language of the law. It is all about the law. And what could be more radical than the word of truth and of grace? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's interesting because I, I, in my own life, I've been touched by so many acts of grace by so many different people. And somehow it's not being transmitted at an institutional level, even though there are people of Christian faith and non-Christian faith who themselves have acted with grace. But let me ask you this question, and, and, and Josh, you may have some thoughts on it too, but I'll, I'll direct it first to you, James, because when I think about what worries me most about contemporary American society, culturally and politically, I would say 
very near and maybe at the top of the list is our epistemic crisis. This idea that we are increasingly living in two different epistemic realities. And we're seeing this play itself out during the transition period. We have a vast majority of Trump supporters believing Joe Biden is an illegitimate president and the election was rigged. But there are many other manifestations of it. And these days, because of social media, people can live in their own silos and have access to their own data set and confirmation bias and all of the rest. But my concern is that we, we talked a lot about Nietzsche and he had the term, as you know, James, perspectivism, which in its crude form is the belief that there's no objective reality, no objective truth. We all get to make up our own script, our own facts and our own reality. Everything is based on your own perspective. That's a problem at an individual level. It's a huge problem at a societal level. And I've had conversations with friends that are different than any other time in my political life, that there seems to be no common set of facts, no authority figures one can appeal to. For example, Tony Fauci in the context of this epidemic. And if you can't appeal to some common set of facts, some kind of common set of reality, it makes life and democratic government extremely difficult. So I wonder, A, if you agree with those concerns that I've articulated about the epistemic crisis, and then beyond that, if I am correct in it, what do we do about it? And how do you recover a sense of loyalty and allegiance to truth and reality when it seems to be slipping away? This was the heart of the book, Culture Wars. I know that people read that book as a political book, but it was a cultural book. And at the, at the heart of it was a description of the historical roots of this epistemic crisis that we're now experiencing. So yes, I do wholeheartedly agree with it. You had mentioned friends of yours who are concerned that we're about to lose it, that their sense of a slippery slope, we're about to go down. It's a really interesting metaphor because it's an image that presupposes a certain level of agency. If we just do something now, we will keep ourselves from sliding over the edge into the abyss. The political discourse of evangelicals has been using the slippery slope metaphor for as long as I've been reading about it and watching. And the edge, the point at which we would go over, keeps getting moved out further and further and further. And again, that sense of agency is still present. My sense is that we went over the slippery slope a long time ago. I would say probably no later than the end of the 19th century. And I think in many respects, it was the Civil War. Because the Civil War demonstrated conclusively that religious authority, which was claimed by the South, and the North could no longer make specific policy, specific judgments about how to rule, how to run a society. It proved that decisively. The 20th century has proved decisively that science can no longer provide a comprehensive vision of the good. We are stuck. We are well beyond the slippery slope. So the third part of your question is what do we do about it? Well, This takes us to faithful presence. And the central part of the argument was, in a way, an epistemological one. 
against the argument, the correspondence theory of truth, which is a kind of enlightenment view of truth, foundationalist view of truth, and against the postmodern view of truth, is an incarnational view of truth. That word and world, the words we speak and the reality to which they are speaking come together, not by fancy circumlocutions, not by fancy rhetoric, not by polemics, not even by great production values in our technology. It comes together when the words we speak are embedded in the lives that we lead. And not only individually, but collectively. It's an incarnational view. It's the only context in which our words are going to be taken seriously. And you unite that to this vision of grace that you're speaking about. It's not going to solve all the problems. It goes beyond the kind of cheap foundationalism of a Steven Pinker on the one hand, and you know the kind of cheap foundationalism that biblicists oftentimes have. But it also goes beyond the kind of cheap perspectivalism of the postmodernists. Well, I just quickly add, Pete, that in approaching the closing minute or two of our podcast and time together, the privilege of affiliating with the wisdom of what you've each just said is a, a rich one, obviously, indeed. And the Moynihan line that everybody knows about how everyone is entitled to his own opinion, but not his own facts, is maybe harder these days because of so much splintering technology and and so much that people can sort of live within silo-wise. But how do you get love of country, as you described earlier? Seems to me we have to show it. And the only other thing I'd say is don't just read Death of Character, read Death of Politics, because there's something positive in both of those books that's forward-looking and not just uh, analytical. Well, thanks. Yeah, because I'm a person of the Christian faith, I believe in death, but I also believe in resurrection. (laughs) So I think we can resurrect our politics and our moral life. And I will say that if people read and listen to James Davison Hunter, that'll help move us up along that road more rapidly than than if they don't. And James, you've been been terrific. Thanks for sharing your time and and your wisdom and your grace with us. It's it's really been a, a privilege to be able to chat with you. Faith Angle exists to connect cutting-edge scholars, policy shapers, and nationwide journalists. Thanks for listening.